Good afternoon. It's Monday, October 11th, 2021. It felt like autumn this morning. This is Ozarks at Large on KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. This hour, we'll dip into more archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History for a sensational series of trials in small-town Arkansas 47 years ago. Remarkably, defendants, prosecutors, people affected by the trial, and even the judge talk to the press about the crime and the punishment. Randy Dixon with the Pryor Center will be our guide. Combined weekend reports from the Arkansas Department of Health include an additional 300 deaths from the virus. The 289 deaths in yesterday's report reflect another periodic data cleanup and do not reflect the number of deaths from the virus in just the past few days. There have now been 8,120 fatal cases of the virus in Arkansas. The combined weekend reports reveal more than 1,300 new cases and 15 fewer hospitalizations because of the disease compared to this time Friday. Delays in international shipping, which began with the onset of the pandemic, are expected to continue through the holidays, and that will likely disrupt business. This week on Talk Business and Politics, Rudy Ortiz, chairman of the Arkansas District Export Council, said he doesn't expect the supply chain issues to get better until late next year. So long as we, as a pandemic is, is with us and that there's lots of people who are getting sick and capacity is being restricted by the fact that the employees uh, can't work, I think it's going to continue to, to be restrictive for quite some time, to, to tell you the truth. I, I, I would not be surprised if next June, July, August, we still are not much further along than we are right now. Benville-based retail giant Walmart recently announced it will hire an additional 20,000 permanent supply chain positions to help speed the delivery of goods. A big day for public radio in Little Rock on Friday. An anonymous donor gave KUAR Radio a $1.5 million gift Friday. That was the final day of the station's fundraiser. It's the largest cash gift in the station's history. It was 10 times the goal of the fall fundraiser for KUAR. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences will use nearly a million dollars to facilitate digital health services for 34 hospitals and clinics throughout the state. The $982,000 grant comes from the Federal Communications Commission. The money will be earmarked for the purchase of new digital health equipment for emergency departments, labor and delivery units, and clinical spaces. Grady Spann, the director of Arkansas State Parks since 2016, is going to retire at the end of 2021. Spann started his career with the state park system in 1993 when he became superintendent of Parkin Archaeological State Park. And the record-winning streak for the number 7 Arkansas Razorback soccer team, now 11 after an overtime win yesterday against Vanderbilt in Nashville. Arkansas's 1-0 victory gives the Razorbacks a 6-0 conference mark and an overall record of 11-2, 11, the longest winning streak in program history. Razorbacks will next host Missouri Friday night beginning at 7. This is Ozarks at Large. University of Arkansas professor Marty Matlock is taking a leave of absence to serve in the Biden administration. He's been appointed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to serve as Senior Advisor for Food Systems Resiliency. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich gives us this report. Marty Matlock, who holds a Ph.D. in biosystems engineering from Oklahoma State University, is also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. He serves as chairman of the tribe's Environmental Protection Commission. His indigenous roots serve as a matrix for his academic research and writing on ecologically sustainable food, water, and community systems. He is founder and executive director of the University of Arkansas Resiliency Center and professor of ecological engineering in the biological and agricultural engineering department. But for now, he's leaving all that behind to live and work in Washington, D.C. as a senior advisor for food systems resiliency and appointee of the United States Department of Agriculture. So I was asked by the Biden administration and Secretary Vilsack back in January to consider this role. I've been a University of Arkansas professor for 20 plus years. So I was asked to uh, consider helping as part of the Build Back Better program to consider uh, helping USDA 
across all of its mission areas to create a program to support resilient food systems. Due to widespread food supply disruptions caused by the global pandemic and under executive order, USDA is investing more than $4 billion through its Build Back Better initiative, as Matlock mentioned. The program will strengthen America's food system, create new market opportunities, tackle the climate crisis, help communities that have been left behind, and support good-paying agricultural food processing and retail jobs. Matlock's role is to make the nation's food supply chain more resilient, meaning the ability to quickly recover from difficult situations. For example, America's meat supply was disrupted by the pandemic. Slaughterhouse and food processing facilities shut down due to widespread illness and death among factory line workers in close quarters, Matlock says, leading to both production and agricultural bottlenecks. And those, those companies are incredibly efficient. They're incredibly effective. That is to say profitable. What we see is an hourglass supply chain. We have over 900,000 beef producers in the United States, cow-calf operators, usually 50 acres, uh, 15, 20 cows. That's really the basis of most of our beef in the United States comes from our neighbors uh, and and those grass-fed pastures. And then some of it is shipped to a a centralized feed yard for fattening, and that's usually six weeks out of the two-year life of the of the animal, and then it's harvested. Harvested by four major corporate meat packers operating dozens of slaughterhouses and processing facilities, Cargill in Minnesota, Tyson Foods in Arkansas, JBS headquartered in Brazil, and National Beef Packing in Kansas City, Missouri. And just one glitch among any of those four meat suppliers can result in massive shortages, higher prices, and burdens on farmers. So what we learned from that is, and that was just one problem, because then we also had a fire at a beef processing facility in Kansas. We had uh, a cybersecurity attack on a, on a JBS facility. And each of those took another 10% bite out of our processing capacity. Now, the reason we're concerned about that isn't just because, oh, consumers had to pay 10 cents more per pound of hamburger. Uh, That wasn't really the concern. The concern is that if you can't process those animals, the farmer, the rancher has to do something with them, which means suddenly the ranchers are taking it on the chin because there's excess supply. And so you you end up with this artificial cycle in the market that just started hurting everybody. But we have a national security interest in ensuring that we have the capacity to produce our own food. A decentralized meat supply chain would be comprised of local farmers selling local feed to local ranchers selling locally fed cattle to local slaughterhouses, the meat delivered to local stores. The same goes for fresh fruits and vegetables, which, corporate grown, are abundant in U.S. grocery stores, but in many places remain inaccessible, Matlock says. This goes to the complexity of our system. Our system is efficient because economics drives efficiency. If you pay for something, paying less is better. If you, if you sell something, selling it for more is better, right? That's, those are pretty much fundamental mark, free market drivers. As big box retailers proliferated across the U.S. in the 1980s and 90s, many thousands of mom and pop stores went bankrupt, creating food deserts in low-income urban and rural districts, including in Arkansas. This issue of the food desert, especially with fruit and vegetables, is just so poignant because you know, the, some of the leading causes of, of, of disease and death in this country are what we eat. Matlock points to tribal enterprise in Oklahoma as a model. Uh, I'm a member of the Cherokee Nation. What I see our tribal communities doing is working with their infrastructure, their retail infrastructure, gas stations, uh, sort of quick stops, and making them micro grocery stores. The Choctaw Nation is doing an incredible job of this, of having fresh fruits and vegetables in their gas stations. That's the kind of solution you need. Now, that's innovation. That's not going to make the Choctaw Nation money, but it's going to make them healthier. It's going to give their citizens more choice. Markets don't solve those problems. We've got to figure out a way to to create that. It would be much easier to do that if we had the means of production, processing, and distribution within each region and locale. In effect, reestablishing America's historic agrarian landscape. So now we have production capacity and processing capacity and distribution capacity within our own communities. This is a brand new idea that we invented 300 years ago. It's not new, actually probably 
30,000 years ago. It's called modern, it's called agriculture, where communities produce our own food. Uh, and so the concentration of fruits and vegetable production in this country into four major regions across the, the Sun Belt, so that we have two seasons of growth, sometimes three seasons, three harvests a year, is part of that market driver that has resulted in uh, incredible distant production. But town square farmers markets, which are trending across the country now, only target a certain demographic, Matlock says. Lots of folks think the solution is sort of some sort of farmers market-esque type of approach. Wrong. Those are great. I love them. It was in Madison, Wisconsin on Saturday, an incredible farmers market downtown. It's like going to Disneyland. You wait in line for, every, for 10 minutes for every booth, right? It's incredible. But what th those are... Those are higher end sort of luxury experiences for those who have the benefit of time and have wealth. Arkansas was once a major exporter of canned beans and spinach, fresh strawberries, grapes, jams, and fresh apples. And Matlock is looking to rebuild such capacity for both local processing and distribution. And we call those food hubs, processing distribution within communities. The means of, that will drive the means of production around those communities of peri-urban agriculture. That sort of concept of, of our ability to produce is critical for our community prosperity and health. If we do not do these things better, we will continue to get unhealthy from what we eat and our food system will be subject to disruption. But rebuilding local food systems in America will take planning, civic engagement, and federal startup funding, which Matlock says is the mission of USDA's Build Back Better initiative. This is where the federal government has a role to play. We need to remove the barriers for competition. We need to enhance the capacity for people, entrepreneurs who want to be in those spaces, to move into those spaces, and there are lots of them. There are lots of innovative models about how you do neighborhood production, everything from a, a very uh, sort of social-minded uh, nonprofit uh, system to a very capitalistic uh, profit-based system, but that is that is socially engaged. So there, the whole spectrum of, of creative capacity here. Matlock cites local breweries as an example. Just two decades ago, national beer companies cornered the market. Today, Northwest Arkansas counts Fossil Cove, Boston Mountain, Apple Blossom, Bike Rack, Saddlebach, and Ivory Bill as successful breweries selling both tap and packaged beers across the region. But to build out sustainable local farm-to-retail food production will take time and lots of federal support. So we're talking about bringing billions of dollars of federal uh, resources to bear to provide a, available low interest, and in some cases no interest loans available grants, sometimes low, low, small producers, small retailer grants across the supply chain. Loans and grants are the tools we have. Technical assistance, workforce development are other tools we have. We'll be doing all four of those things. Stakeholder meetings with local communities and tribes are already underway, Matlock says, to establish best practices, as is collaboration with USDA rural development. He says he will be courting land-grant universities and extension programs to assist to provide technical support. The Build Back Better initiative is funded through the American Rescue Plan, as well as the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This month's Northwest Arkansas Technology Summit, presented by the Greater Bentonville Area Chamber of Commerce, will include awards for Innovator of the Year and Emerging Innovator of the Year. This morning, we learned the recipients for each. Megan Bowman, founder and CEO of Stopwatch, is the Emerging Innovator of the Year. Carter Malloy, the founder and CEO of AcreTrader, is the Innovator of the Year. AcreTrader is a digitally-aided way to invest in farmland. Stopwatch is a software company. This year's Tech Summit is October 17th through the 20th, and it's described as a hybrid event with a watch party at Record Downtown and after-hour events. More information can be found at greaterbentonville.com. The American Red Cross says the post-summer blood supply is at its lowest in at least six years as the agency continues to deal with blood donor turnout drops because of the continued effects of remote work and lingering hesitancy after the surge of Delta variant cases of COVID-19 this summer. Donors of all blood types, but especially typo, are encouraged to make appointments to give blood at redcrossblood.org. 
In the early 1960s, Patricia McGinnis made it her mission to remove the taboo from a certain word. I'm going to talk about abortion. Abortion! She just was determined to not let conventions that I think she had found extremely stultifying keep her from liberties that she felt she and other women deserved. Remembering an early abortion rights activist this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered this afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF and streaming through the KUAF app. Last night, parts of Spring and West in downtown Fayetteville were closed for the kickoff party for Theater Squared's 16th season. The choir from St. James Baptist Church in Fayetteville entertained for part of the night singing from the balcony above West Avenue. The event also served as a celebration of what T2 has done during the 19 months of pandemic. Streaming shows, world premieres, and safely presenting multiple productions on multiple stages. Shannon Jones, T2's general manager, says it was, as theater always is, a team effort. Well, you know, we had an incredible staff that really, uh, when the times got tough, they really bonded together, and we had an incredible team that helped us to put on the amazing work that we're doing today. Despite the pandemic, or maybe partly because of it, the past two years have been arguably the most ambitious yet for Theater Squared, albeit with revised schedules and shifts in production. American Mariachi earlier this year had the largest set in T2 history until the current run of Designing Women. Martin Miller, T2's executive director, says there's a theme here. Which year hasn't been the most ambitious year we've done yet? Miller says the T2 staff's ambitions are great, but so is the ability to properly gauge what to do next. Internally, externally, we're often reminded, okay, we got to make sure our ambition is also matched by gratitude to the people making it work and acknowledgement that it is a lot of work. So we, we make adjustments. We made some even midstream this year just to make sure everybody could stay balanced. But we also, like, in Project Don't Let COVID Win, really wanted to use every single card we had. And... Uh, so far, so good. General Manager Shannon Jones says the desire to present quality theater didn't evaporate during the pandemic. I think every person that we bring into our staff has an incredible ingenuity um, and inventiveness when it comes to making live theater in Northwest Arkansas possible. And our staff is so incredible at making our wildest dreams come true. The current run of Designing Women continues through October 24th, and streaming options for the production begin on Friday night. Nia Vardolo's Tiny Beautiful Things will begin with in-person and streaming productions on October 20th. And then the play Marie and Rosetta about the relationship between Arkansas native sister Rosetta Tharp and Marie Knight will open November 17th. More information at theater2.org. The Autumn Gala at the Botanical Garden of the Ozarks is Thursday, October 21st at 7 p.m. This socially distanced event includes live jazz, games, auctions, drinks, and a chef-prepared dinner on the Great Lawn. Tickets are limited and available at bgozarks.org. This is Ozarks at Large. This week, many of the best cyclocross athletes from around the world will be cycling and running in Fayetteville. There will be a World Cup cyclocross race at Centennial Park in Fayetteville Wednesday, and that's just the start of one of the busiest months here for cycling. We traveled to downtown Bentonville Friday to ask Gary Vernon, who works in tandem with cycling organizations like the Oz Trails, to learn more about October's cycling activities. You know, Kyle, October's always a jam-packed month, you know, for cycling, and really for many reasons, but mainly it's just the best month for weather. Leaves are changing, the bugs are going away, the weeds don't grow anymore, so really it's, it's, a, it's a month that I enjoy. And, man, we have a lot of events this month. And, and what's on the list? Well, first of all, Fayetteville is hosting a World Cup cyclocross race, and it's actually coming up Wednesday the 13th this week at Centennial Park. The Oz Trails Off-Road Mountain Bike Race is October 15th through 17th in Bentonville. And that's one of the premier mountain bike races in the nation. Outer Bike is the 22nd through the 24th in Bentonville. This is that uh, bike demo where... All of the vendors will be there with their $9,000 carbon bikes, and you can jump on one and ride them on the trails in Bentonville and uh, figure out which bike you want to buy next. And then the Big Sugar Gravel Race is October 23rd. That $9,000 carbon cycle, I always think it should weigh more if it costs that much, but apparently the more you pay, the less they That's weigh. Right. That's right. And it's once you get to about 25 pounds, it's $1,000 a pound to, 
to make them lighter when you look at it. Ooh. All right. You mentioned the World Cup cyclocross. Cyclocross is a, uh, an emerging sport that a lot of people may not be familiar with, but it takes some stamina, some fitness, a lot of fun to watch. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cyclocross has been around for quite a while. It actually, uh, and, and what is cyclocross? What's a mixture of road cycling and mountain biking, really? A, a cyclocross bicycle looks like a road bike. It's got drop bars, but it's got wider, knobby tires. You know, and the, the course at Centennial Park is, it's a two-mile course. It winds around the mountain bike course up there. It's got wide, flowing grass lanes. There's stairs that you can, you have to actually get off your bike, put it on your shoulder, and run upstairs. It's got steep hills to climb, obstacles to hop over, and it's high intensity. The riders will probably average 190 plus beats per minute for an hour when they're, they're racing. And, and this, is, this is a really unique, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's not really common around this part, you know, of a nation, but over in Europe, I mean, it's, it's actually started in Europe. And 100 years ago, it was really kind of a training regiment where the, uh, you know, the road racers, the, the folks that are going to race the Tour de France would, uh, would train all winter. And if, you, if you're on a road bike and you're on the open road in 20 degree weather, well, it's freezing cold. So they would, they would duck off the road. They would, they would go through a farmer's field. They would go into the woods. They may have to hop over a fence, hop over logs. And they wore these real, real thin leather shoes for cycling. And so their feet would freeze. So they'd get off and they'd actually run to warm their feet up. And that, you know, that was just part of the winter training. But, you know, like any other competitive group of cyclists, they started racing each other in the winter. And uh, so they would, you know, take, take each other on each other's routes and see who can get to the next town first. And then that actually became, became a, a, a real event. And, uh, you know, the Belgians actually had the first national championship in 1910. And over the years, it's like certain countries seem to dominate the podium, and currently it's the Belgians. I think it's actually a national holiday when the World Cups and the, uh, and the World Championship come for Belgium. But, uh, you know, the, the Swiss and the French riders have dominated the podiums over the years. Now, the U.S. has had riders on the podium of every category. So it, it's going to be a great show in, in Fayetteville. I want to point out also that we're calling this a World Cup because it is a world event. This is premier. Oh, yes. Riders from around the country, around the uh, world will be here. And, and this, is a, this is a series of, of you know, these World Cups. You, you raise them for points, and at the end of the series, then you, you champion a World Cup, Cup winner. It, much like Formula One auto racing or something like that. It is. And actually, we're going to have there's three events in the U.S. for 2021. There's the uh, Waterloo-Wisconsin event that actually happened last weekend. And then Fayetteville is this Wednesday on the 13th, and then Iowa City is the 17th. So this is going to be, for the fans and the racers, it's going to be a really neat series if you wanted to follow it. And, but the big deal is coming in January in, in Fayetteville. Fayetteville, Experience Fayetteville, is hosting the World Championship Cyclocross Race. And this is a one-day winner-take-all event. This is, we're going to crown the uh, the winner in Arkansas of the uh, World Championship Cyclocross. So, so Molly Ron has done a wonderful job roping all this together and, and making sure that everything, every detail is is in check. And, and uh, Brandon Pack, a good friend of mine who works with Molly, they, they've done a great job. And we're really excited. This is going to be a, a, a wonderful economic impact for the region and certainly Fayetteville. So we're excited about that. You also mentioned gravel racing. Well, you know, the birth of gravel came from cyclocross. Those cyclocross bikes with their wider tires and, and uh, you know, wider spacing in the frame and, and heavier-duty brakes just made it, made it, you know, something you could actually ride when the pavement ends. You can keep riding on a cyclocross bike. So that became something that uh, it's actually become huge across the country. And Arkansas has got some of the most beautiful scenery along our gravel roads and I love I love riding my gravel bike and, and actually I like to go multi-days and go bike packing because you can kind of see some of the backcountry some of the most beautiful parts of Arkansas you can only access on a gravel road so um, now you know the modern day gravel bike um, is is more the geometry is a little more re relaxed than a cyclocross racing bike so it's it's more of a touring bike with 
with uh, now they're tubeless tires, disc brakes. You can put your your bike packing gear, you know, on it and and do multi days. But but the gravel racing has been, become a huge thing. If you're if you're not, I mean, the way I look at it, if you're maybe not comfortable on the road and not ready for the mountain bike trail, gravel road riding is a perfect blend of both. And gravel road racing is is super fun because you can, it's really something you can do socially. You can ride side by side and, and look at the scenery. Or if you're, you know, if your head's down and you're pedaling hard, you can, you can ride, um, some of our roads are hilly and, and rugged, so you'll be challenged, but super excited about the big sugar gravel event that's going to happen at the end of the month. Um, it's, it's a hundred mile race and there's a 50 mile option. The, the route leaves Bentonville goes to Western Benton County and weaves through Bella Vista, this really beautiful rolling hills, works his way up into Missouri, and there is a, a family that has a brewery of a Missouri, and you'll go by the brewery, you can stop in and, and get you a beer if you're not in a hurry. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll just blow through and keep going, but you work your way through Pea Ridge and then back along uh, Sugar Creek Road and back into Bentonville. So uh, when that was first opened for registration, the... Uh, the 1,200 riders filled up in three minutes, so it's it's a popular event. Last time we were together, I asked you to, not your favorite, not the best, just highlight a trail that's in our area, our state, our region, that people could ride on. I'm going to ask you again. Do you have a trail in mind that you would just suggest hitting the trail? Well, I'll tell you, with all the action this week in Fayetteville, I mean, it really highlights what's going on in Centennial Park, which is a 193-acre property that was purchased about four years ago. The, the city and the Walton Family Foundation partnered on this, this wonderful hilltop, and it's just west of the university across the highway. And uh, it's been in development for the past two years, and now it's got over 13 miles of trail, and that includes that, that cyclocross course, that two-mile course. It's got the World Cup cross-country course. You know, if you think back in April, we had the Pro Cup, mountain bike race there. Next year, we're going to have a larger mountain bike race that uh, Molly and Brandon are going to put on again. And um, it's, it's just, it's, but it's also got some beginner trail. It's got a, a jump line or two for the expert, you know, kids that want to jump high in the air. And A jump line. Help me out here. It's got hills that you can leave the ground on uh, your bicycle, Kyle. Okay. And uh, they're, they're super fun. I and mean, it's really... <laughs> It kind of has something for everybody. You know, we, to get the kids riding, Kyle, you got to have fun, flowy jumps. That's, we've learned that over the years. Got to get them off their phones. And, and really, rock solid uh, is trail contracting and the trailblazers, you know, did an amazing job of creating a, a world-class destination. You know, and the city's really done a great job of helping develop this venue. You know, on top of the mountain, there's, there's parking for team vans and the media you know there'll be satellite tv there filming this you know event and it's just the venue itself is pretty incredible it's it's worth going there just to check it out and you can go there and ride any any day of the week you know when there's not an event it's open to the public and we're going to see pro riders come and train in Fayetteville for both cyclocross and mountain biking so it's pretty exciting I know that it's real close to the University of Arkansas campus, and I think a lot of U of A students take advantage of that. Absolutely. This is a good time to be a mountain biker that goes to the University of Arkansas because there's actually a traverse trail. It's going to be a loop from the university. It'll go west and go under the highway, jump on Centennial Park, and you can keep riding through, or you can stay there and ride a lap or two, but you can go on over south to Kessler, ride through Kessler, and then loop back to the south and go back to the university. And the university is actually getting a really cool, unique surface trail, you know, soft surface trail through the campus. So really you could do laps on the campus property, you know, after class or between classes and get a mountain bike ride in. But we're really excited about how that's going to turn out. You know, and, and speaking of Kessler Mountain, and that's a destination on its own. You know, this is a this is another city park. It's south of Centennial, and it's connected by the Traverse Trail. And this, this city park was championed by Frank Sharp, who uh, was really the hero that, that made the case for the city to purchase this. And again, kind of a partnership with the Walton Family Foundation and the city, that land was purchased from a bank. And it, otherwise, it was kind of on its way to becoming developed. And, uh, you know, the Ozark off-road cyclist 
back in the day, uh, Chuck Maxwell was was a big uh, you know leader in, in helping to design the trail system on there, and he had plenty of help when, from the Ozark off-road cyclists uh, like Rob Reno, John Sage, Phil Penny, and Phil Penny's one of our trail builders now owns his own company. Several others just made that a labor of love over there at Kessler and. and that trail system is is really special because it's kind of a more of a classic single track, really technical sandstone, large rocks kind of inset in the ground. So you have to pick your way through the trail, but uh, it's certainly a, a favorite. So really, when you when you go to Fayetteville and you ride that traverse loop, you can kind of pick what you want to ride. You want to ride something that a uh, World Cup mountain biker would race on. Do you want to ride something if you want to jump or if you want to do some old school? technical single track and bounce your way through the trail or just make a 20 mile loop and and get back to class Fayetteville has got everything for you where can people find out about these events sort of a clearinghouse for cycling in northwest Arkansas well I would je definitely jump on experience Fayetteville's website go to Austrails nwa.com and uh, all that information will be at your fingertips. Gary Vernon keeps an eye on all things cycling for us, and we met up with him Friday afternoon in downtown Bentonville. Support for KUAF comes from the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, now featuring wealth management and brokers, plus local business news from Northwest Arkansas. Subscriptions and more information available at 725-0394 or nwabusinessjournal.com. The Friends of the Eureka Springs Carnegie Public Library will hold the annual fall book sale October 16th and 17th, then again the 23rd and 24th. Thousands of books, audiobooks, DVDs, and thank you, music CDs will be available. All proceeds will benefit the library's programs and acquisitions. If you'd like to know more, you can go to the Friends of Eureka Springs Carnegie Public Library Facebook page, or you can go old school and call 253 8754. Speaking of books, the Friends of the Elkins Public Library and the Elkins Community Network will host the Book Bash Saturday, October 30th at the Elkins Community Center. It's a fundraiser for the Elkins Public Library. It will feature a book and bake sale, local authors, a story time, costume contest, it's the day before Halloween after all, and more. If you'd like to know more about what's going on in Elkins with the library, elkinsar.org slash bookbash. Doctor, do you have a comment for us? No comment. Just glad to be out of custody. What do you do? What do, you do? I'll answer uh, any further questions for you. All right, we're going to hear more about that uh, quote and to help guide us through what was a major crime story almost half a century ago in Little Rock is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Randy, welcome back. What are we looking at this week? Well, this was probably the most sensational uh, crime and trial to follow, or trials to follow, uh, of the 1970s. It was in small town, Searcy, Arkansas. 1974, the body of Fern Rogers was found in her home, uh, shot twice in the head, and um, it, it caused uh, quite an uproar uh, in town, and there was an extensive investigation by police, and uh, it ended up pointing strongly towards her estranged husband, who was well-known in the community, uh, Dr. Uh, Porter Rogers, who was a millionaire doctor, had been practicing uh, medicine in the community for decades, even had bought a hospital and named it uh, after him. And it what began to unravel uh, became very lurid. It had everything. It had uh, you know the scandal of murder and sex. It turned out that Dr. Rogers was having an affair with his 21-year-old secretary by the name of Peggy Hale. Uh, the investigation led to their arrest on top of her, uh, her ex-boyfriend by the name of William Kimbrell, who the police say the two hired and paid several thousand dollars uh, to actually commit the murders. So this sets the stage for uh, three trials, and um, why don't we start off by 
getting it set up by uh, KATV's John Hudgens. Dr. Porter Rogers Sr. is currently undergoing psychiatric examination in connection with charges he had a part in the murder of his wife last September. Dr. Rogers' secretary, Miss Peggy Hale, this morning pled not guilty in White County Circuit Court in connection with charges she had a part in that murder. A third person also charged with murder is William Kimbrell of BB. He's represented by attorney Jack Lessonberry, and this morning, through his attorney, asked for a continuance. Circuit Judge John Anderson of Helena granted that continuance until sometime in early March. There's an impressive lineup of attorneys in this case. Dr. Rogers himself will be represented by Ed Bethune, Miss Hale by Jack Holt. Prosecutor Gene Raff has said that he will seek the death penalty in connection with the murder charges. He's sticking by that and said the state is ready to prosecute. This is John Hudgens in Searcy reporting for News Scene 7. It's John Hudgens. Uh, who worked for KATV in 1974, this week's Prior Center Profile, again using archives from the KATV uh, history of newscasts that are housed at the Prior Center. We're talking about a sensational murder in small-town Arkansas in 1974, and some of the lawyers involved with this were well-known lawyers then, but they were going to become even bigger names in Arkansas history after this. Exactly. Ed Bethune became a U.S. congressman. Uh, Jack Holt, of course, we have talked to uh, in the past on this program, became a Supreme Court Chief Justice. And then Jack Lessonberry was a well-known attorney in central Arkansas. And the prosecutor was quite well-known, Gene Raff. Um, the trials begin, and Steve Barnes, um, as you know, with... Arkansas PBS now was a reporter for KATV, and he spent uh, the entire time, weeks, uh, in Searcy covering this trial. If all of this had been fiction from the pen of the South's greatest novelist, it would have been bad Faulkner. To fit the literary mold, this trial should have been held in the heat of summer. Attorneys dressed in white coats, overhead fans trying vainly to cool the courtroom. What we have is February and March, cold, rain, wet streets, and an overwhelming sense of sadness. People would rush home to see the 6 o'clock news because you didn't have Twitter. The Democrat was an afternoon paper at that time, but they wouldn't have had time to put to press what had happened in the trials that day. So people were getting, the, for the first time, information about what happened that day from Steve Barnes and Channel 7. That's true, and they didn't have a 5 o'clock news either. So that was the program of record, the newscast of record, would be the 6 o'clock news. Um, he continued his coverage throughout the weeks ahead, and this is what developed. Uh, Peggy Hale, the girlfriend, um, ended up pleading guilty and testified against the other defendants in their trials. And it was kind of a crazy trial that drew a lot of attention, even national attention, um, especially for Dr. Rogers. Um, for instance, when the murder charges were read in court, he plugged his fingers in his ears, and there were times that the judge had to call a recess because of his uncontrolled sobbing uh, during the trial. Um, what also came out that was that Rogers was quoted as telling police, the only reason I can explain Fern's death was because I was hungry for Peggy Hale. That, that's a headline for you, isn't it? But in the end, Rogers was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Um, here is Ed Bethune, his attorney's reaction uh, after the verdict. Ed, were you surprised by the verdict? Well, uh, I had hoped for something less than that. I'd be candid with you about that. Uh, anytime you work on a case for as long as I've worked on this one, uh, you always try to be optimistic and uh, look for something a little better than that. However, uh, it was satisfying to me that the jury could easily see that this was not a capital felony murder case. What was your client's reaction up there when you were talking with him up in his cell? Just as it always has been. Uh, Dr. Rogers uh, has good balance. Will you elaborate on that, please? What, what did he say? Was he disappointed? At, at, uh, this, at this point in time, I think Dr. Rogers uh, is in, in good shape. That's future Congressman Ed Bethune reacting to his, um, his client being uh, found guilty and sentenced to uh, life in prison. Now, 
we're going to hear from the prosecutor, Gene Raff, who was also asked what he thought of the verdict. Is this a satisfying verdict? Oh, I think that we had an exceptionally fine jury. I think that they made a dedicated effort uh, to sift through this evidence, to find out where truth was, and they rendered their verdict. Uh, as you know, we have two other cases that are going to be uh, uh, in the offing. And I think if I commented any further on it at this time, it probably would uh, not be in the best interests of the system. Did you think you could get a capital felony murder conviction? Oh, let me say this to you. I think that we presented the evidence uh, with respect to this. Uh, the punishment, the determination is in the hands of a jury, and that's where it should be. That's our system, and it works well. Now, this next cut, Randy Dixon, from fall of 1974, this is the son of the doctor who's just been convicted of murdering, I would assume, this man's mother. Yes. Yeah. Yes, this is um, Porter Rogers Jr. And uh, I was surprised at how calm and collected he was uh, in his response to, to the verdict. This is a great tragedy from the very start. All of the circumstances are tragic. Uh, I think that justice has been served. I think uh, my father was tried by his peers in his home county. The best effort was given by the judiciary system, by the prosecution, by the, the defense, and also by the jury. And I feel that justice at this point has been served. It's Porter Rogers Jr. We're talking about what was a wildly sensational uh, crime and subsequent um, trials in, 47 years ago in White County in Arkansas. All right, we've heard that Dr. Rogers is guilty, sentenced to life in prison. The person who we believe pulled the trigger? Yes, um, William Kimbrell. He was also found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. So all that was left was Peggy Hale, and Steve Barnes is still on the job. For prosecutors Gene Raff and Robert Edwards, the end of a year of investigation and interrogation was at hand. The last defendant was before the bar, the only member of the trio of conspirators to acknowledge guilt. When court began, defense attorney Holt insisted that Miss Hale had been the victim of Dr. Rogers, that the young woman had been dazzled by the wealth and influence the physician wielded, and he said the convictions of Dr. Rogers and Barry Kimbrell would have been impossible without her cooperation. He asked the court for a reduction to second-degree murder and recommended a sentence of 10 years. Prosecutor Raff told the court that justice was required for Mrs. Rogers, her family, for White County. No conspirator was less guilty than another, he argued. They all did their part in the taking of a human life. He agreed to a reduction to second-degree murder, but asked for the maximum 21-year penalty. Judge Anderson noted that conviction of Dr. Rogers and Kimbrell would have been difficult, improbable, he termed it, without cooperation from Ms. Hale. It is with some degree of reluctance, the judge said, the charge is reduced to second-degree murder. Anderson then imposed the maximum sentence of 21 years. Steve Barnes reporting in 1974 for KATV. Here's something else that shocked me. I mean, just, and this was a story, I was 11 years old in 1974. I was not aware when this was going on. But here's something else that kind of surprises me. After she's sentenced, she talks to Steve Barnes. I feel relieved. I'm happy. I knew that um, I would receive a fairly stiff sentence. I think that it was fair. I'm ready to get this part of my life behind me and look to the future. Again, I think, I think one thing this speaks to is the overwhelming near monopoly that television had with a story like this in the mid-1970s. That's true. Um, and it seemed to me, especially during this trial, that, that everyone was quite open to speak uh, to the cameras. You had all the attorneys, you had the prosecutor, you even had uh, a convicted murderer, Peggy Hale. Uh, or she pleaded guilty. So... Um, Let's hear how Gene Raff, he's, been, he's spent uh, probably more than a year uh, working on these cases and these trials, and this is sort of his thoughts about, about the whole process. It is difficult for me to see when three people combine together, conspire, 
scheme, and take the life of a human being, it's most difficult to assign relative degrees of responsibility. I think the issue before the court today was not what are those relative degrees of responsibility, but rather what was the measure of cooperation that this particular defendant had given with respect to the prosecution and to the evidence of the plan, the scheme, and the design. All right, Randy, like you, I am surprised listening back to this just how much access the defendants, those affected by the crime, the prosecutors, the defense lawyers, how much time they spent in front of cameras and microphones. And so Steve Barnes asked the judge of the case about this. Well, and that's very unusual. Judges usually don't sit down in front of a camera and talk about a specific case. But uh, Judge John Anderson from Helena, who presided over all of this, uh, had these things to say to Steve. Judge Anderson, do you recognize an inherent conflict between fair trial and free press? No, Steve, I don't see any conflict. I think it's a matter of mutual understanding and mutual trust. That is certainly what we had in the course of this trial. As you recall, I asked all of you representatives of the media in the chambers before the trial started and told you that I would allow you as wide a latitude as possible within the confines of criminal procedure and, and in order not to prejudice the integrity of this trial. And I told you that I would let you in on a whole lot of in-camera proceedings if I had your word and the word of the other press that they would not publish anything without my knowledge or consent. And I must say, I had full cooperation of the press. I do not believe that in the course of the trial, my requests were violated one time. I can't, I mean, I imagine this was, I mean, Searcy and White County, not that far away from Little Rock, but imagine this was a statewide conversation and, and watching this lurid trial, trials take place. Yes, and it also received national attention. There were, uh, I believe the New York Times uh, covered it, uh, certainly not to the extent that someone in Arkansas or the media in Arkansas would, but um, it did get, get national attention. Dr. Rogers, convicted, sentenced to life, but he appeals. Yes, and there was a question of whether or not to let him be released on bond while he waited on the appeal, and these were Gene Raff's thoughts. There's evidence adduced in this trial that the defendant in this case is worth some $5 million. When you realize that and you realize the verdict of a jury uh, composed of White County people, uh, that he has been sentenced to life imprisonment. You have to look to the motive that the person would have if released upon bail to leave the jurisdiction of this court. And the bond must be consistent with that motive and consistent with his financial assets and resources. Here's another thing that shocks me. Going back in this, he was released while they considered. He sure was. And, you know, you're talking a millionaire who, who has access to uh, a lot of resources, um, but... The cameras caught up with uh, Rogers and his attorney, uh, Ed Bethune, as they were leaving the courthouse after they made bond. Doctor, do you have a comment for us? No comment. Just glad to be out of custody. What do you do? What do you do? Your I'll answer uh, any further questions for you, gentlemen. Uh, Dr. Rogers is pleased to be out of custody, state and federal, and intends to enjoy uh, himself while his case is appealed to the Arkansas Supreme Court. First thing that hasn't surprised me about this story is the lawyer, the defense lawyer, Ed Bethune, saying, I'll take the questions from here. I'll, I'll handle this. Yeah, it's, a, it's probably a smart move. Yeah. yeah. So um, we put all this to rest, but, you know, Steve Barnes, who has covered this from start to finish, um, has some final thoughts here in a report on Channel 7. It is highly unlikely, of course, that Miss Hale will serve a sentence even approaching 21 years in length. With time served awaiting trial and with the possible accumulation of good time at the women's penitentiary, Miss Hale could be free in roughly three years. Both Dr. Rogers and Barry Kimbrell are appealing their verdicts, so the litigation could easily last another year. But the drama that came of the state's most sensational murder trial is largely, if not completely, ended. It was a case that held captive the attention of the state and much of the nation. 
a case that exposed the best and worst of mankind. But more than a lesson in human nature, it was trauma for the members of three families and all the people who loved them. This is Steve Barnes in Searcy reporting for New Scene 7. Porter Rogers uh, died in prison uh, in 1980. And uh, one little footnote, apparently the inscription on his tombstone reads, an exceptional man. Well, this is uh, something that I had very little knowledge of, and it's just one of the many things that KETV covered over the past 70 years or so. That's right, and you can see it all on our website. Just Google Pryor Center and go to the KETV section. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Talk again next Monday. Can do. I'm Scott Tong. Fifty years ago, author Francis Moore LePay wrote Diet for a Small Planet. It took the idea of a plant-based diet from counterculture to conventional wisdom. The book is an invitation to enjoy and to experiment and to really excite people about this way of eating. We digest its impact next time on Here and Now. Here and Now can be heard at 1 o'clock this afternoon on KUAF and at KUAF.com. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the state legislature passed a new congressional district map last week, but... The districts for the state legislature also need updating after the 2020 census. Last Friday, as part of the annual Hispanic Women's Organization of Arkansas Conference, there was discussion about those legislative maps. We hope to be complete on our end, the Board of Apportionment, uh, before this month is up. Our organization is working uh, on redistricting. We have our own plan, uh, and what we do uh, is educate. We uh, we're real big on educating our members. That's Camara Seals with the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. Before that, we heard from Arkansas Secretary of State John Thurston. He's one-third of the Board of Apportionment, given the task of drawing the new state legislative districts. We'll hear what both had to say during their panel discussion at last week's Hispanic Women's Organization of Arkansas Conference. That's on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. And on your schedule when you subscribe to the free Ozarks at Large podcast through any major podcast distributor. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation.